I like to think they cut you short because they're so excited to hear me. We'll see. We're continuing our, our Faith at Home series talking about how God intends for faith to have a special priority and a place in the home. Last week we talked about the importance of passing faith intentionally to the next generation, but, but really you can't talk for very long about faith at home and, and passing faith to the next generation without talking about marriage. I'm not talking about the love between a husband and a wife, uh, and we're going to do that today. We're going to talk about what it means to have the most excellent marriage, because there's a passage that I think can really enlighten us on what it would mean to have the most excellent marriages. Um, before we do that, we, we really have to start any conversation about the kind of love that God intends between a husband and a wife or a parent and a child or any kind of love has to begin with a conversation about, about God's love, about the love that exists in God for for us, and one of the things that's interesting is that the Bible, I think, actually has a difficult time explaining to us just how incredible God's love really is. How do you describe something that's deeper than the oceans and, and more than all the ink and the pens of the earth could write? How do you describe that? And all these authors in Scripture take different approaches. First John 4 tries the, the very descriptive approach using uh, real descriptive language, saying things like, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how we, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. But the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. And a lot of the language of 1 John works this way. Love, 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 love. And, and have you ever had a word that you've said so many times that it starts to sound kind of fuzzy on your tongue or different in your ear? And, and you kind of think, am I saying it right? Is it love? Is it love? I think it's love. Is it love? What does love mean? Where you've said it so many times that it almost loses its meaning. John at times flirts with that challenge that difficulty, then when you start to talk about the, the kind of relationship that God desires with us, you almost use the word love so many times that you're like, yeah, I get it. What's, give me new words. Give me a, a thesaurus. Give me something else to help me understand it. And so a lot of times when it comes to helping us understand the love that God has for us, rather than go with, with the almost excessive, effusive descriptiveness that you would have to use to give a real description of God's love, a lot of the biblical authors will use images, we use metaphors, we use pictures, and a lot of times when they go to those kinds of pictures, the only kinds of human relationships that come close to the love that God has for us are family relationships. There's a connection over and over again in Scripture between the love of God and the love that exists in family. We, all, we know lots of passages that talk about God as Father, God as, as Abba, God as Daddy. That's one of the most powerful images that we have probably uh, 10 or 12 times today in church already. We've either uh, called God Abba or Father or Padre. We've referred to Him as Dad. We know that image well, but Scripture even at times refers to God as, as a mother because the love of a mother for a child is different, but, but still women being made in the image of God have the characteristics and imprint of God on them and in them. And in the way that they love their children, there's something of God in that. And so uh, you get passages like Hosea 13 and verse 8 that, that uses the, the description of God like a mama bear. God says, you don't mess with my cubs. 
Oh, mama bear you. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 18 refers to God as, as from the stone who gives birth, the God who, who gave birth to us, that God is creator and source in a way that a mother is. That Isaiah 66 and verse 13 refers to God as a mother who's comforting her child. There's a difference between how moms comfort their kids and how dads do. It's not as often that you hear moms say, rub dirt on it, walk it off, get over it, builds character. When God's compassionate and merciful, a lot of times he's more like a mom. And the, t the scriptures find ways to use these images. How do you describe God? The words run short and the, the ink runs dry before we can describe God. And so we talk about fathers and we talk about mothers. And over and over again, scripture goes to the image of, of marriage. Uh, parents are helpful because the love of a parent is limitless. It's so caring and it's compassionate. But, but when the scripture wants to talk about the relationship with God as one that is a covenant relationship where two parties willingly choose to be in relationship with each other throughout the lifetime, that, that it's an eternal covenant, what scripture goes to is it says, you know, marriage is like Christ's love for the church. God's love for us is like the love of a spouse for one who is betraying him. God's love is like that between a spouse, a husband and a wife, a wife and her husband. And these images come through and they help us to see something about God's love that, that we couldn't have without that picture. And, and this illustration is so effective because marriage reminds us of intimacy, of the intimacy of one that you know so much. I remember when Leah and I first started dating, we'd go to restaurants uh, and we would see couples. We'd kind of play this game where we would look at people and decide how bored they looked and try and guess how long they'd been married. Um, and you'd be like, man, they've been married a long time. Look at them. They're, they're not even looking at each other. No eye contact is being made. Now that we're the boring couple, we know we're just comfortable in that space. We know each other. It's, it's kind of... Um, we're just kind of like, hey, let's take 10 minutes and on purpose not talk. You know, and you don't say it out loud, but you get in that space and you know it because of the familiarity and the intimacy and the life experience that, 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 that you're just comfortable in that space. I have a different respect for moments like that. But marriage can show you something like that in a relationship with God. Uh, when you're in a young marriage, you have to have small talk. But when you're in a mature marriage, you can just exist in the presence of and God desires that with us. Uh, special devotion to a spouse. God desires that in the relationship. And so we get passages that talk about how uh, the love of God is like the love between a, a husband and a wife. And the love between Christ and the church is like a husband and wife. And most famous among those uh, certainly is Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to spend a little bit of time there as we get started this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's helping, trying to get them to understand how much Jesus loves the church. So in Ephesians 5, 21, he says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. But I'm talking about Christ and the church, he says. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife respect, must respect her husband. We've got to take a minute just to recognize this passage has been misused at times over the years and the centuries uh, for men to be cruel to their wives. To say, I'm in charge, and I'm the boss, and I'm, I'm the head, and you do whatever I want, and you submit to me, and all that. And this is not, you're not reading this text if that's your takeaway. Listen to the first verse we read. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Both of you submitting to one another, putting one another first is what that means, but all of that out of reverence for Christ. Because Christ is head, I serve and submit myself to you. And he then goes on and says, you know, husbands, you're the head of the church. You're the head of your, your wife in the church in the same way that Jesus is the head and has authority over the church and loves the church. And if you think that the Jesus way of, of being in charge and having authority and being great is to get anyone to do everything you want, go find me a passage where Jesus acts like a boss or a master or a king. What you see is Jesus who says, if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, you've got to become the least. If you want to be the greatest, you've got to become like a child. If you want to, to gain your life, you need to lose it. You want to be, have a part of me and my kingdom? Then get down and, and take on this ultimate act of humility and wash other people's dirty feet. That's the kind of leadership Jesus calls us to. There were several times that they tried to make him an earthly king, and they said, we want you to be king of us in this place right now. One of the people that wanted that was Satan. The other time, Peter says, Jesus, not your way, but this earthly way. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Over and over again, Jesus rejects earthly leadership and power and authority. He dies on a cross as the act of greatest love. So if you read Ephesians, if you read Ephesians here and you think, yeah, that's right. I'm the man. I get to be the boss. Look, if you want to be the boss, go to Burger King and you can have it your way. But if you want to have... If you want to have this kind of a marriage, if you want to have this kind of a marriage, it starts with submission. Submit to one another. Love your wives like Christ loves the church, men. And I hear from time to time, here and in other places, wives, often Christian wives, complaining out of this text. And, and that complaint often sounds something like, I, I just wish, and the complaint is often drip, dripping with either disappointment or contempt, I just wish my husband would lead. I just wish my husband would step up. But listen to what the text asks of women. Deep down, a husband desires his wife's respect. 
deep down a husband desired his wife's respect. He wants her to admire him, to think highly of him, to think that, that he's a big deal so that as he submits to her, that she submits to him by giving him honor and recognition and the respect that he desires. And you have what verse 21 desires, a mutually submissive marriage. Because let me tell you this, when a husband has a wife who thinks the world of him, he tends to not care what the world thinks of him. If your wife thinks the world of you, who cares what the world thinks? You've got it all. And so you get this vision of mutual submission, and it's beautifully described. And Paul does this great job of weaving it in back and forth and saying, you give a little and I give a little. And there's authority and there's leadership and there's respect, but it's all built in this idea of mutuality. But here's the most important thing you need about this passage is that Paul's talking about the church. And he's talking about marriage, and then he's talking about God, and he's talking about husbands and wives, and he's talking about salvation, and then he's and you're going, Paul, wait a minute. Paul, are you, are you telling us about the church so that we can understand marriage? Or are you telling us about a great marriage so that we can understand Christ's love for the church? Because he's bouncing all over the place. He goes back and forth, and the way that he's using pronouns, I think he's intentionally leaving you going, uh, Paul, which one are you doing? Because he's creating this picture of showing that marriage and the relationship of Jesus and, and the body of Christ is so similar and it's so interwoven and it is so intimately and perfectly connected, at least in its design, that you can't tell what he's talking about. So in verse 32, he has to give us the key so that we know. He says this in verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Christ and the church. But while I'm on the topic, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. He says, I'm talking about the church. It's this beautiful image. He says, you want, me to, you want me to tell you what the church is like, how much Jesus loves the church? It's like the most beautiful, mutually submissive, loving, respect-filled marriage you've ever seen. That's what, how Jesus feels about his body, the church. But while I'm on the topic, your marriage should be like that, too. So it'll help other people realize how Jesus loves the church. It'll help you appreciate how Jesus loves the body. For Paul, a beautiful marriage and the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church are so intricately connected. He just bounces back and forth. And so marriage becomes this incredible image of what, of what God's love is, of what Christ's love is. And yet at the same time, a lot of times when Scripture uses the image of marriage to describe God's love, it's actually using it in the negative. It's using it in the negative. The most powerful example of this in, the, in all of Scripture to me uh, is the Old Testament prophet Hosea. We're not going to go there uh, and read it because it's kind of long and developed, but the short version is this. God tells to Hosea, Hosea, I want you to take a wife named Gomer, and she's going to be unfaithful to you. She's going to be unfaithful to you, and she's going to have children uh, that will be your children, but they will also be unfaithful to you. There will be children that will rebel against you. Your life is going to be in agony because of, uh, of how they abandon you. In fact, uh, Gomer is going to sell herself out to other men in a way that they now own her. 
And he says, but, but Hosea, I'm doing this so that you can understand how it feels when my people Israel uh, abandon me and betray me and go worship other gods. Exactly. That's how I feel. Hosea, there's no other relationship in this world that can help you to understand how much I ache and long and yearn for you, my people Israel, than to experience this when Gomer leaves and your children rebel. He says, but Hosea, I want you to know my love. I want you to go win her back. So I want you to go whisper to her the, the stories and the words of love and romance and, and, and win her back and pay the price for her to be set free from those who now own her so that she can come back into your home and be your wife. He says, Hosea, that's my love. And you get these two pictures at opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, Ephesians 5, this beautiful image of a mutually submissive marriage. And, and the scripture tells us that's what Christ's love for the church is like. And God says, if you want to understand how much I hurt when you abandon me, then you've got to go read Hosea because this image of a, a painful and, and betrayed filled, betrayal-filled marriage is the only way I can describe to you the kind of pain I feel when you guys, as my people, reject me. And as such, when we see this, there's a guy named Kurt Bruner, who's an author and speaker today, who does a lot of talking on faith at home. And he says, listen, in a time when the world was illiterate and didn't know how to read, the church had to depend on art and architecture and murals to be able to show people who God is and what he had done. They couldn't give them pamphlets because they couldn't read. And they said, we're just going to paint pictures of how great God is so that the world will know and the world will believe. We don't use much art and architecture in, in Protestant churches today for different reasons. Things got maybe carried too far in other directions, but maybe we need to bring some of that back because we are re-entering a time of a biblically illiterate world. Okay. But, but, more than, but more than art and architecture, I believe the marriage is intended to be one of the most powerful images and icons of God's love, of who God is and what his, his church should look like. Your neighbors should see your house and your family and say, wow, I don't know what's in the Bible, but I see that family and I see what God's people can look like. I hope people at work hear you talk about your marriage and that their thought is, I don't know much about the God you believe in, but if the God you believe in loves like you love your spouse, I may want to be a part of that because my spouse doesn't think about me that way, doesn't submit to me that way, doesn't respect me that way, doesn't lead me that way way. Marriage is an image of what the world needs to see, to see who God is and what he's doing, what he has done and what he's desiring to do in the world today. I need to, in a minute, we're going to get to the most excellent way to be married. We're going to get to the most excellent way to be married. I've got to take one minute and talk to the single people. All right, so single people, this is your minute. Um, and, and some of the other stuff is good for you, too. I want you to understand marriage and God's love. You need that. That's for everyone. Uh, but single people, we need a moment for a word of advice for those who are uh, always single, committed to the single life. Uh, or maybe you're single by some unfortunate circumstance or by being widowed. I, I don't know. But here's what you need to know is that there's good news for you, too. I'm going to give you two pieces of advice. One's from Paul. One's from me. Probably value his more. But even he gives a disclaimer. So, you know, maybe mine's better. So 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's talking about marriage and divorce, and he offers this advice, but he begins with the preface. Here's the preface and the disclaimer. I have no command from the Lord, 
but I give a judgment as one by who the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. This is Paul's advice. And then he goes on to explain that if you're unmarried and a Christian, just go ahead and stay that way. His words, because because those who get married may face many troubles in this life. Amen, church? Yeah. Paul says, listen, if you're not married, stay that way. Now, he gives one condition and a purpose. It's not just because he's opposed to marriage in general. Here's the condition and the purpose. The condition is stay unmarried if you can refrain from sexual immorality. That's the condition. Here's the purpose so that you might be able to focus more on the kingdom of God. When you're married, you are, you're responsible for taking care of your own household. When you're not, you can commit yourself fully to caring for the household of God. Paul says, all things being equal, take my advice, choose the household of God as long as you're able to without falling into sexual immorality. Now, Kent's advice is this, and I offer it to you today not as a word from the Lord, but my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And this is, this is it. If you're unmarried, you need to understand the purpose for dating. Okay? The purpose for dating is this. Teens, listen really carefully. The purpose of dating is not to get the one that you're with across the finish line of a wedding. That is not the purpose of dating. The purpose of dating is to determine whether the one you're with is the right one for you to make a lifelong commitment to or not. Because if we don't understand this, here's here's the problem. If we don't get the right idea about this, if the goal were to get married every time you're dating someone, then every time you broke up with somebody or you got broken up with, then you could look at that relationship and say, man, that relationship failed. However, If we understand that the purpose of dating or courting or whatever approach you take to to becoming Facebook official, I don't know, whatever approach you take to finding out if the purpose is to figure out if this person is the right one for you to make a lifelong commitment with to raise a family that you will pass faith to. If that's the purpose and you break up with the wrong person, you have dated that person successfully. Does that make sense? Dating is for discernment. Uh, not marriage. Are you the right person? If you are, then let's go this way. If you aren't, let's just call it what it is now and go our way as friends. It's discernment. Okay. Alton, trustworthy? Trustworthy. Uh, Now, the most excellent way to be married. Uh, It begins in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. It's the passage that was read earlier uh, this morning. And it begins with the phrase, Now let me tell you of a still more excellent way, uh, Paul writes. And he's writing now to the church uh, in Corinth. A still more excellent way. Uh, The Greek of this is fun. I want to give it to you just quickly. Uh, It's etikath hyperbolein. Uh, You don't need to be able to pronounce it. I probably just did it terribly, so I won't ask you to repeat after me. Here's what you need to know. That word hyperbolane means to throw beyond. The, The image here in this text is that you set a goal over where you wanted your marriage to get to, where you wanted this love to get to, where you wanted, uh, what your standard was for good love. 
and then you threw it towards that mark, and you threw it so far beyond. And the word kath, is, at the beginning of it, is a heightening word. It says, even more so. And then the word eti means still, so that you get this idea of still more throwing beyond the goal which you set. Which is fun, because we often use in relationships, uh, man, I met your wife and you outkicked your coverage. And that's like a biblical phrase. All this time. And, and Paul is trying to get across, it's not just, hey, let me show you a good way. It's something like, let me show you the very most wonderful, great, awesome way. Is what he's saying. He's being exuberant in his description about what he is preparing to describe. And, and to understand the context, what Paul is describing is a situation in the church where people want certain uh, really visible spiritual gifts. I'm going to speak in tongues and heal people and do things that are exciting. Uh, and Paul is saying, no, don't get caught up in those things. I want you to pursue a love that is the most excellent way. Love is the most excellent way. The other stuff is nothing if you don't have love. And here's why I think this is a, a close parallel to marriage. Paul's not applying it to marriage. I am. It's because I think that so often today that people have problems in their marriage because they want a relationship that still has the new car smell. And if their marriage has lost that new car smell, they want to go chase after the new model and replace the old one. And what Paul says is don't get hung up chasing romance and flirting and the new feeling of a young relationship and the excitement and enthusiasm that comes from a great proposal and a romance that includes poetry. Where'd the poetry go? Paul says this, now eagerly desire the greater gifts and I will show you the most excellent way. So if I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. If your marriage is incredible and it's filled with fun and vacations and adventure and poetry, but you don't have genuine love, your marriage is nothing. So what is a good, most excellent way, Paul? What is a church that has that or what is a marriage that has that look like? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not honor, dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Marriages go through seasons. In the spring of a new marriage, a new relationship, it's exciting, it's new, everything's springing up and new life is in the air. You enjoy uh, just going outside and being with one another. In the dog days of summer, with kids and jobs and careers and financial difficulties and other stuff, marriage can get hard. The days can seem long. 
And as you get through those with your spouse, if you manage to get through it, you may find that you've either, coming into the fall, fallen either deeper in love as having gone through that together, or you've fallen away from one another as a result of that. Here's what I want you to know, is that you should not, if you have this genuine kind of love in your marriage, you're not going to keep chasing spring. This genuine kind of love that's patient and kind, that's, that's, that's filled with all of the traits that we just talked about, that kind of love gets you through the tough times so that you can fall deeper in love in your, as your marriage progresses through difficult times. If you have a shallow, lovey-dovey, flirty kind of love, and that's all you ever want, you're going to keep having to run back to spring, back to new models, back to uh, models of cars. My metaphor got weird there. I apologize. Um, you're going to keep chasing stuff that's not your spouse, okay? So how do we do it? It's an active love. It's not an emotion. It's an active love. Patience is something that you demonstrate. Kindness is something you demonstrate. Not being self-seeking, putting your, your spouse's desires above your own, which goes back to that mutually submissive kind of image. And it's no surprise that, that this is part of a Christian marriage because it's a Jesus kind of love. Someone's trying to trip Jesus up in Luke chapter 10, and they said, what is the greatest command? He says, what do you think it is? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. And he says, yes, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And if you don't know it, go read it this week. It's in Luke 10. It's this story of active goodness, picking someone up who's down, taking care of them, providing compassion and care when you don't have to. Jesus kind of love, active love, meaningful in a marriage. Well, how do we get it? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit, don't think of the song, think of what this means. If the Spirit is in you, that which it produces is this, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Verse 25, it keeps going, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. If you look at this passage that says, here's what happens if the Spirit comes into your life. You're going to be transformed, and these characteristics are going to start being produced in you. And, and I want you to see, you have the, the two lists up here in a second. Skip ahead a little bit. Um, if you look at the list of the traits of genuine love in 1 Corinthians 13 and the list of what the Spirit will produce in you if you are a Spirit-filled person, the list share way more in common than, than I think we realize. Conceitedness, pride, forgiveness, kindness, patience, forbearance. Patience is what you have with someone on a good day. Forbearance is what you have on a bad day. Same idea. All right. You can tell yourself sometimes you're really mad at your spouse. I'm going to be patient with you today. When you're really mad at your spouse, you say, I'm going to bear with you for one more day. One more day. A house of peace that's not easily angered. The list have so much in common. And here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. Is that the Spirit produces the traits of love in us. Love is the most excellent way to be married or be part of a church or any part of it, to be in a family. Love is the most excellent way. 
And this excellent way opens us up to a mutually submissive life and a Christ-like lifelong marriage. That marriage teaches the world about who God is and what he's done. And it shows your children and it shows the world God's love and design. It shows your children in the world Christ's love for his church. It shows your children in your world the Spirit's fruit in your life. Your marriage can become an evangelistic testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Holy Spirit working in you and your spouse. That's what we're calling you to do at Northwest, is to have a a marriage that's so good that people see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in your love for your spouse. So that your children will grow up saying, man, I don't know who I want to marry, but I know that I want a marriage that's like mom and dad's. And when you hear it, you think to yourself, that's good news. Church, if you're in here today, and if you don't have a marriage that's worthy of your children seeking to duplicate it, If you're in here today and your marriage is not a depiction of the love of Christ for his church, put in the work to get it there. We've got the Family Resource Center. We've got shepherds that are going to do everything they can to help get you there. We've got ministers that want to come alongside you and and counsel you, whatever else you need. We've got all kinds of things that we want to do for you, but it starts with you deciding that I'm going to have a marriage that's worthy of my children duplicating and that depicts the love of Christ for his church to anyone that wants to see it. And you put in the work to get it there for the sake of your kids and for the sake of the kingdom. And I'll promise you this, if you put in the work, you will never regret it. And if you need to respond to that invitation or the invitation to be part of God's family through faith and baptism and a lifelong commitment to let him continue growing you up to where you need to be, come forward this morning while we have an invitation, while we stand and sing. I apologize. I I don't remember which one I chose, and they don't have it up there. Give me just a moment. There we go. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity. May his spirit divine all my being refine. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. When somebody has been so unkind to you, some word spoken that pierces you through and through, think how he was beguiled, 
spat upon and reviled. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in you. From the dawn of the morning to close the day, in example, in deeds, and in all you say, lay your gifts at his feet, ever strive to keep sweet, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in you. Maybe see it.